Greetings, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here again. Thanks for downloading the China History Podcast episode for this week. We're going to look at the third emperor of the Ming Dynasty today. If you recall, in the last episode, the Hongwu Emperor, the founder of the Ming Dynasty, carelessly created a situation when he passed away in 1398. His son, the crown prince, died in 1392. Rather than pick the next eldest son, Zhu Di, the Hongwu Emperor picks the eldest son of the deceased crown prince, and once the Hongwu Emperor passes from the scene, the grandson takes over as the Jianwen Emperor. The eldest living son of the deceased Hongwu Emperor, Zhu Di, he's not too pleased with this decision, and as we will see, he ends up usurping the throne after a four-year civil war. So, last week we looked at the Ming founder, Zhu Yuanzhang, the Hongwu Emperor, and this week we look at his son, Zhu Di, who reigns for 22 years, from 1402 to 1424, and is known as the Yongle Emperor, and also as the Changzu Emperor, or Ming Changzu. We'll refer to him in this episode as the Yongle Emperor. It's quite a story these few years when the grandson, now reigning as the Jianwen Emperor, played this deadly game with his uncle Zhu Di. The Jianwen Emperor, he wasn't bad or anything. It's said that the open rift between the two all started when Prince Zhu Di came to Nanjing to pay his respects to his recently deceased father, the Hongwu Emperor. He came with a whole armed entourage that the emperor's people saw as potentially threatening. And after all, it was no secret that the handing off of the succession like he did, the Hongwu Emperor had created this rift between the grandson, the Jianwen Emperor, and his son, the Prince of Yen, Zhu Di. Both grandson and son, they had legitimate claims, so when he shows up at the palace with all this muscle in tow, the Jianwen Emperor, he threw down the gauntlet and the emperor had his guards bar their entry. In fact, Zhu Di was even uh, prohibited from visiting his father's tomb. So now everything was out in the open between these two, and may the better man win. The Jianwen Emperor then began to take political measures to diminish the Prince of Yen, he abolished all these princedoms that were led by many of the sons of the deceased emperor. And this move undermined Zhu Di, who was the prince of Yen. Uh, Yen uh, was the area around Beijing. Uh, the Jianwen emperor's idea was to get rid of all these princes and fill the spots with his loyal generals. So Zhu Di is basically outgunned, outmanned, and he retreats to regroup. So he assembles enough generals and loyal supporters to make his move. And then in January 1402, he's strong enough, he marches on Nanjing, and to make a long story short, he takes Nanjing and the imperial palace goes down in flames along with the Jianwen emperor. Or did it? They never found his body or that of his empress who perished together with him. So our hero, Zhu Di, 42 years old, he takes the throne and after... Finally getting the chance to pay his respects before his father's tomb, he declares himself emperor and the Yongle era begins. He had a lot of mopping up to do. China was not in very good shape. Remember the last years of Hongwu saw all kinds of rebellion and unrest, and the Jianwen emperor, for his four years on the throne, he was too busy sparring with his uncle Zhu Di, so he couldn't get the Ming house in order either. The Yongle Emperor went above and beyond the call of duty to root out all Jianwen Emperor loyalists, and there were quite a few. There's this 
famous story of the Jianwen loyalist Fang Xiaoru, who had served as the royal tutor to the Jianwen emperor. So he refused to cooperate with the Yongle emperor from the get-go. Being one of the top-ranked Confucian scholars of his day, he was called upon by the emperor to write a kind of inaugural address for his coronation or for some ceremony. So Fang Xiaoru, he refused, and for this insult to Yongle, refusing in the name of his loyalty to Jianwen, to take this honor to write this address, he was given the ultimate penalty. Yeah, he was given the Julian Jiuzu. This means the continuous elimination of nine tribes. This punishment was reserved for the most heinous of crimes on a national scale. Treason would be an example. It involved the execution of the entire family of an individual going back many generations. The relatives were categorized into nine groups. In the old Chinese system, there were nine kinds of family guanxi and relationships, and this pretty much patrilineally, that is, uh, covers the link between the great-great-grandfather all the way down to the great-great-grandchildren. So, when Feng Xiaoru was given this penalty, not only was he executed, and we'll get to that in a second, others who went down with him included his living parents, grandparents, his children, all his grandchildren as well, and they were included in this penalty. Whatever siblings he had, they too had to pay the ultimate price for their brother's treason. Whatever uncles he had, as well as their spouses, they too got caught up in this net. In a final act of defiance, when the emperor handed down his sentence that he suffer this harsh penalty involving the nine exterminations, as it was called, he spat back at the emperor, This translates roughly to, don't stop at nine, why not ten tribes? So for this, Fang Xiaoru, loyal to his fallen Jianwen emperor to the last, was given the good old Yao Zhan, or severing the body in half at the waist. And as the legend goes, as he lay dying on the ground, he took his finger and dipped it in his own blood and wrote the 16-stroke character Cuan on the ground, the character for the word usurper. Ouch, take that, Yongle Emperor. Well, for good measure, the Emperor took Feng to his word about, you know, why not another tribe, an additional tenth, and uh, rather than exterminate more of his family, the emperor he took him to his word, and he went after all his students, colleagues, and friends instead. It said a total of 873 people were executed in toto for uh, Feng Xiaoru's act of defiance to the Yongle Emperor. The Yongle Emperor, he did a little revision to the history of his time. He went and had all references to the Jianwen Emperor taken out of the record and destroyed. All official trace of his four years on the throne were sanitized as if the whole thing never happened. And to account for those four years when the Yongle Emperor did not reign, the reign of the deceased Hongwu Emperor, his father, was increased by four years so that, on paper at least, the Yongle era was the successor to the Hongwu era. And so things began for this emperor with this little instance of uh, Li's majesty. The third Ming Emperor, he reigned for 22 years, from 1402 to 1424. He's known for his expansionist activity, sponsoring the voyages of Admiral Zheng He, his five campaigns against the Mongols that he led personally, and for being a strong, hands-on monarch who exuded strength and confidence. 
His obsessions included expansion into Mongolia, Manchuria, and southward into Vietnam, as well as a lusting for prestige amongst his Asian neighbors, particularly those from Southeast Asia and all the coastal kingdoms that rimmed the Indian Ocean. He instituted a very extravagant tributary system, and in fact, Zheng He's voyages and this whole passion the emperor had for this tributary system were both interrelated. He moved the imperial capital from his father's beloved Nanjing to the site of the former Yuan Dynasty capital of Datu, which had been renamed Beiping, and now the Yongle emperor renamed this city Beijing. Bei, the third tone, means north, and Jing, first tone, means capital, and Nan, second tone, means south. So Nanjing, southern capital, Beijing, northern capital. And if you look at the kanji for the city of Tokyo, the Japanese pronounce it Tokyo, but in Mandarin, these characters are pronounced Dongjing, first tone, first tone. Dong means east, so Dongjing means eastern capital, which the Japanese pronounce Tokyo. He had a lot of reconstruction to do, and the Yongle emperor immediately set about creating a dream team of scholars of the Confucian tradition, of course. His father hadn't left things in the best state, and the four-year civil war didn't help. If there was one thing he could say about this emperor, he really took the words carpe diem to heart. Not a minute of his day was ever wasted. He was a tireless ruler, administrator, and as I said, he led armies into battle as emperor. As a builder of public works, Yongle definitely earned his stripes. He carried out massive reconstruction to the severely degraded Grand Canal. Remember the Grand Canal, which ran from Beijing south to Hangzhou, was built during the Sui Dynasty during the reign of the father-son emperors Wen Di and Yang Di. It had been 800 years since it was completed in 609, so it was probably in need of some uh, heavy-duty maintenance. The Yongle Emperor also called for the construction of a building known as the Porcelain Tower, or Porcelain Pagoda, of Nanjing. It was 267 feet high, 97 feet in diameter. It was a nine-story, octagonally-shaped pagoda made from porcelain bricks with intricate facings of green, yellow, and brown, white ceramic tiles. It was decorated from top to bottom with Buddhist images. During the day, the sun shone off the glazed bricks, and at night, 140 lanterns were hung that beautifully illuminated the building. In its time, it was admired by visitors to the capital and became sort of an iconic sight in China. However, in the uh, 1800s, it was struck by lightning that blew off the top three floors, and later during the Taiping Rebellion, which we'll be hearing about when we cover the next dynasty in China, uh, first the Taiping rebels destroyed all the Buddhist images, and then they destroyed the interior spiral staircase with its 184 steps. They did this to ensure the uh, Qing government army did not use the tower as an observation post. By 1856, it was destroyed, and the Porcelain Pagoda, one of the seven wonders of the medieval world, was gone for good. Or is it? In 2004, the Nanjing municipal government, in a bid to enhance, Nanjing is a tourist destination, earmarked 600 million RMB, a little over 90 million U.S. dollars, to rebuild this ancient structure from the ground up. Not finished yet, as far as I know, but I can't wait to see it next time I'm in Nanjing. 
One more trophy in the Yongle Emperor's Hall of Fame would be the Forbidden City. He was the one who championed the whole idea of creating an all-inclusive city within a city where the emperor and his family could live, work, and play, and the entire administration of the Ming Empire could be centrally managed. And this was the Zijincheng, or the Forbidden City. We'll do a podcast on this topic later on uh, this year. One of the earliest achievements was the Yongle Encyclopedia. This was written between 1403 and 1408. Remember, he became emperor in 1402. So this Yongle Dian, when it was written, was the largest and most comprehensive of its kind. Now, 1408, mind you, the Italian Renaissance is in gear, but it's only the time of Cosimo de' Medici and all the great stuff that happened under Piero and Lorenzo de' Medici is still decades away. So this great work, the Yongle Encyclopedia, compiled by 2,000 scholars, contained over 8,000 works going back to the Bronze Age of China. There were just under 23,000 scrolls, each scroll being one chapter, and the total volumes of the encyclopedia were 11,095. Written by hand on these scrolls was a grand total of 370 million characters. The topics were, you know, what you might generally expect in an encyclopedia. Of course, with the internet, these great encyclopedic works are somewhat obsolete, but if you can Remember the days before the internet, and I know it's hard to remember life without Google, Yahoo, and AOL, but before then, a set of encyclopedias was the database and the search engine was your hands and your brain. This Yongle encyclopedia was like a mini library of Alexandria, all in one single work. Unfortunately, less than 4% of the encyclopedia survives to this day. A mere 400 volumes out of 11,095. Something this massive couldn't be block printed back then, so there was only the original, and that was it. Nothing else existed. I mean, supposedly there was a second one written, but um, no solid evidence on that. A third copy was commissioned after the only surviving copy narrowly missed getting destroyed in a palace fire during the reign of the uh, Jia Jing Emperor. By the time of the late 19th century... Only 800 volumes remained, and of that, half were destroyed during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. You can go to the National Library of China, the Zhongguo Guojia Tushuguan, and there you can see what remains of the Yongle Encyclopedia. Bits and pieces of it are scattered around the world in various uh, private collections and museums, but uh, more than half of what remains you can see in the uh, National Library in Beijing. He equally supported all three of the great religions of China, Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism. He was also a supporter of Islam, and there were two mosques built in China during his reign in Nanjing and Xi'an that still stand to this day. In 1403, the emperor announced he was going to send a fleet of ships to the countries of the Western Ocean. To accomplish such a task on a scale to match the Yongle emperor's ego, a massive shipbuilding operation was set up on the Qinghuai River where it meets the Yangtze at Nanjing, and this became the shipbuilding center of China. And China, at least during the time of this emperor, sailed the most preeminent fleet in the world. Now let's look at the man that the emperor puts in charge of this project, which was massively expensive. Its whole raison d'etre was to blow the people away who were in China's orbit. This basically included the peoples of Southeast Asia, Persia, the Middle East, and Central Asia, as well as the civilizations of India and the East Coast of Africa. 
the Yongle Emperor wanted to bring the might and the cultural superiority and everything that was great about China to all these far-flung places. The desired outcome for every mission was to get these kingdoms, states, or whatever to agree to sign on and pay tribute to the Ming Emperor. And they would become like vassal states and participate in this annual tribute system where they would prostrate themselves before the Ming Emperor once a year and bring gifts and then they would be showered with many, many more gifts than what they themselves had presented. This was all part of the ritual, of course, China being the big brother in these relationships. They had to shower these tribute-bearing missions with much more than what they would offer to the emperor. So anyway, Zheng He, he was born Ma He in 1371. If you recall from the last episode, he was a young boy who was captured in Yunnan when the Hongwu Emperor was battling to bring the last remnants of China into the Ming Dynasty fold. Yunnan was one of the last places to be brought back into uh, China, and in the fight, young Ma He was captured and brought back to the capital. He was a Muslim of Persian ancestry. Upon his capture, he was made a eunuch and ended up serving the Ming Emperor Yongle. Ma He's relationship as a trusted ally of the emperor was solidified after he helped put down remnants of the defeated Jianwen emperor. It was the Yongle emperor who gave him the name Zheng He. In total, there were seven voyages, six of them ordered by Yongle and a seventh ordered by the Xuande emperor, a successor to Yongle who passed in 1424. Actually, there was a the brief reign of the Hongxi Emperor who put an end to the voyages, but he only lasted a year, and when the Xuande Emperor took over, he called for a seventh and final voyage, and it was during this voyage that Zheng He died and was buried at sea. But it was the Yongle Emperor who is credited with being the force behind these great voyages. Six of the voyages occurred between 1405 and 1421, and the last one, under Xuande, was in 1431. Now, not only was this a mission to fly the flag, show off China's superiority, and bring in tribute missions, it was also a manhunt for the Jianwen Emperor, who was probably killed in the fire that burned down the palace, but, as I said, his body was never found, and the Yongle Emperor always had this nagging obsession that maybe he was still alive and perhaps living in exile, gathering his strength to come back and claim the throne. So, besides wowing the peoples of Southeast Asia, India, Arabia, Africa, Zheng He was also on these voyages, keeping his eyes open for any trace of the possibly escaped Jianwen Emperor. The first voyage took Admiral Zheng He's fleet to Vietnam and then on to Java, Malaysia, the Maldives, and the east coast of India from Calcutta down to the east coast in Kerala State and to Ceylon, which of course is now called Sri Lanka. This area was known as the Western Ocean. Today we know it as the Indian Ocean. The second and third voyages were about the same as far as what ports were called at on the 4th, 5th, and 6th voyages, the fleet went as far as Aden and the Straits of Hormuz, Yemen, Somalia, Kenya, and other East African cities. Since the records for these last two voyages were purposely destroyed, it is unknown whether the legends are true that Zheng He's fleet went as far as Iran. In all, more than 30 different kingdoms were visited. He sailed in a variety of different kinds of ships, most legendary and spectacular of these vessels were the so-called treasure ships, or Baochuan, 
None survive today, and there is no solid, irrefutable evidence of their size and construction. What has come down to us are descriptions of them, and from what we know, at least, these ships were 450 feet long and about 180 feet wide. This would make them the largest ships by far of their time, more than twice as long as the largest 16th century European ships. Zheng He's massive treasure ships had nine masts and four decks that could hold 500 passengers, a crew, with plenty of space to hold cargo. Marco Polo himself said in his account of his travels that he had seen these ships and that they could hold 500 to 1,000 passengers. Of the 300 ships in Zheng He's fleet, 62 of them were categorized as these treasure ships. Again, we have no solid evidence of their massive sizes, but even if we take it as a given that there is some degree of exaggeration, these were still the largest vessels sailing the seas in the 15th century. The first six voyages were almost continuous, beginning from 1405. In other words, as soon as Zheng He returned, he didn't stay long and was off again for another voyage. However, after the Sixth voyage ended in 1422. There was a long time in between the sixth and the seventh voyage. Eight years, in fact, passed before Zheng He took his final adventure to the Western Ocean. And like the space shuttles of today, there were enthusiastic supporters and enthusiastic detractors. The more conservative Confucianists were first among the groups who were dead set against all these voyages with all their potential unintended consequences and new ideas they might bring in. Plus, they were aghast at the cost. Indeed, these voyages were extravagant and wasteful in a way. Other than all this amazing prestige China received from these kingdoms who came in contact with these fleets, it didn't lead to any significant income into China, and it never led to any territorial expansion, though that was never the purpose of these seven voyages. Mostly, it was all about the Yongle Emperor spreading the word about China and reveling in the total pleasure of being bowed down to and presented with strange and valuable and exotic gifts and scientific curiosities from representatives of kings from faraway lands. No doubt a good deal of geographic data was accumulated over the course of the journeys. And the Yongle Emperor of Ming China no doubt felt a sense of immense satisfaction knowing that all these visiting tribute missions were affirming the Chinese concept of universal subordination under heaven's sun. There's a steel or steely, you know, one of those uh, stone slabs with some inscription written on them uh, that was erected in the city of Fuzhou in Fujian province that says of Zheng He that he was, quote, to go to the foreigners' countries and confer presents upon them so as to transform them by displaying our power while treating distant people with kindness, unquote. You may have uh, seen or heard about a book by a chap named uh, Gavin Menzies uh, called 1421, The Year That China Discovered the World. It contends that Zheng He's fleet's visit to the New World uh, predated that of Columbus in 1492. This was uh, one controversial book, and though it did uh, well as far as book sales went, it's, uh, it, it has been savaged by China historians as a work of pure fiction. And then, once Yongle goes, this itch to carry on these costly and awe-inspiring expeditions was abruptly halted. The treasure ships all sat in port in China and just simply rotted away. 
And as far as the Jianwen Emperor, who may have escaped the talons of the Yongle Emperor, uh, he, they, you know, there was never any trace uh, of him found anywhere. So these voyages, they came to a crashing end in 1433, and there were never again any follow-up voyages made. All records regarding the seven voyages were destroyed under orders from the War Ministry, and it wasn't until 1567 that these restrictive trade laws were repealed. And that was it. China closed the door right at the very, very moment in history when the age of exploration was just about to take off big time. And as China lay dormant and looking inward, England, Holland, Portugal, Spain, France, they all took to the seas and built these trading empires on multiple continents. One of the legacies of these voyages was that all along the routes navigated by these uh, vessels, Chinese settlements began to establish themselves throughout uh, Southeast Asia, particularly in Malaysia, Indonesia. And today, millions of Huachao, or overseas Chinese, live in these settlements created five, six hundred years ago. There's one other interesting thing about the reign of the Yongle Emperor, and this was his attempts to invade, conquer, and hold on to Vietnam. The parallels between China's experience during the two decades from 1407 to 1427 and America's experience in the 1960s. A lot of striking similarities. So while the Yongle Emperor was busy doing all these other big projects like fighting the Mongols and rebuilding the country's infrastructure, improving the administration, sending Zheng He out on these voyages, he also spent pretty much his entire reign dealing with Vietnam. The Li Dynasty in Vietnam had an uneasy relationship with China. They fought with the Song to a truce, and there was eh, relative peace. But the Li Dynasty was overthrown in 1225, and there began the Tran Dynasty. Aside from having to fight off the Mongols not once but three times, the Tran Dynasty established a period of relative peace and prosperity. They acknowledged Song Dynasty, China's suzerainty for the sake of convenience, and under duress, they did the same thing with the Mongol Yuan Dynasty. But after the Ming came to power, Vietnam, or Dai Viet, as it was called, with uh, Champa down in the south, they felt enough was enough, and they stopped kowtowing to the Chinese. So, to make a long story short, there was a diplomatic incident, and Yongle sends 215,000 troops to invade Vietnam. In 1407, the Ming are victorious, and Annam is annexed to China and renamed Jiaozhi province. But not for long. All it took was a little popular unrest and some heavenly inspiration from the Trung sisters for the Vietnamese to rise up against their Chinese masters or oppressors. The Trung sisters, of course, were famous for their role in overthrowing the Han dynasty and kicking them out of Vietnam. The Trung sisters no doubt gave plenty of inspiration to the Vietnamese over the centuries. But here was the problem. The Vietnamese rebels who were trying to win their country back and kick China out of Vietnam and get them to retreat north from where they came from, the Ming artillery weapons were just too powerful for, and their numbers were too high to overpower in you know, conventional battle. So, after 13 years of guerrilla warfare, fighting in the jungles and mountains, they finally wore down these Ming troops who just had such a difficult time in this just wretched tropical climate. I mean, you see, 
In mid-1420s, there arose a guy named Le Loi in Vietnam. Now, he ended up founding the later Le Dynasty, but in 1418, he assumed leadership of the cause to rid Vietnam of the Ming troops. So he removed the last uh, Tran emperor and set himself up along the way as, as emperor. And he couldn't, he couldn't defeat the Ming head-on, so it was jungle guerrilla warfare, which I am sure was as unpleasant back then as it was in modern days. And a small sidebar, Emperor Le Loi was a great inspiration centuries later to a guy known as Nguyen Ai Kwa, and more commonly known as Ho Chi Minh. So, by the year 1427, during the reign of the Xuande Emperor, the Ming were finally and very soundly defeated, and that was the end of their Vietnamese adventure. Many tried and many failed over the centuries to conquer and hang on to Vietnam. The Yongle Emperor, he died on August 12th, 1424, during one of his military campaigns, uh, this one in the north against the Tatars, he died in what is today Inner Mongolia and was brought back to Beijing, where he had just moved to three years earlier after spending ten years building the Forbidden City and this whole new capital. So next time you see a picture of the Forbidden City, think of this emperor, Yongle. And next time you're in Beijing, you can actually visit his tomb, the Changling, which is the oldest and largest of the 13 Ming tombs just north of Beijing. I visited them in 1980, uh, and along with the Great Wall, the 13 tombs, the Shirsanling, are one of the top tourist attractions when you are in Beijing. We're going to stop here with the death of this emperor and pick up next week with the final two centuries of the Ming Dynasty, and providing that I am able to consolidate these final 220 years and 12 emperors into the next episode, we will at last arrive at the Manchu Qing Dynasty, the last dynasty of China. Anyways, let's cross that bridge when we come to it. That's all for today. I have to go online right now and look for Mr. Ray Harris Jr. of the History of World War II podcast. If you're interested in World War II and who isn't, uh, check out Ray's show either in the iTunes store or through his website at www.arii.com backslash blog. Ray invited me on his show to discuss the long march of 1934-1935. So I encourage you to check out his World War II history podcast show out. He's got a lot of uh, rave reviews in iTunes. And so, from a wet and rainy Claremont, California, this is once again Laszlo Montgomery wishing everyone around the world the very best. We'll see you next week, I hope, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.